Number two, three cosmic messages, second quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We're starting our lesson number two, a moment of destiny in the three cosmic messages quarter. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator and Bill is going to offer our opening prayer. Good morning, Father. We thank you for the opportunity to come together as a group and to study your holy word these very important lessons on last day events. And we thank you for everyone's participation today and the words that they speak. Father, we thank you especially for John Pauline for putting this lesson together and moderating this morning. Father, we thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of a series on the three angels' messages, which are Revelation 14, Verses 6 through 12 or 13, people disagree on the end point a little bit, and it's not critical to understanding. But the lesson has started with a study on chapter 12, which is the larger background to the three angels' messages. And today is going to the afterground, if you wish. In other words, verses 14 through 20 in Revelation 14, we'll take a look at that today. And then next week, beginning with actually the three angels' messages themselves, a study on the everlasting gospel, verse 6. And then the next week is a study of fearing God and giving him glory. And then weeks afterward, talking about judgment, etc. So the lesson is taking a piece-by-piece approach, working through these three angels' messages and trying to help us understand their relevance, not only for then, but also for today. So let's start by reading Revelation 14 and verses 14 and 15, and that will give us an interesting start, I think, to our lesson. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Here's the question with a text like this. Should we take these things literally or figuratively? And interestingly enough, as I've looked at what people generally do with these, there's often a mixed picture. People's taking some things literally, some things figuratively, for example. The golden crown. Is Jesus going to wear a golden crown when he returns? What about the white cloud? It seems that there was a literal white cloud when Jesus ascended to heaven back in AD 31. Will it also be a literal white cloud? What about the sharp sickle? You may have seen paintings with Jesus having a sickle in his hand when he returns. Is that going to be the case or does this have a different purpose? What about the temple? Is that literal? Is there a literal building in heaven? Or is the term temple figurative of things that God is doing for us in heaven? And then the harvest. Is the harvest here literal or figurative? And the question would be, how does one decide when any of these items should be taken figuratively or literally? Maybe for fun, at least those of you that have your cameras on, and if you'd like to participate, turn them on now. We'll have a little poll here and see where this group stands on these things. All right, let's start with the white cloud. How many of you would take that literally? Just raise your right hand. Okay, we have several takers, almost half. Well, let's ask, how many of you would take it figuratively? Raise your hand. Yeah, it looks pretty even, I would say. 
So we're kind of 50-50 on that one. What about the golden crown? How many of you would take that literally? Okay, several, all right, but less than previously. How about the sharp sickle? Is that literal or figuratively? How many would take it literally? Okay, we have one on this one. So <laughs> the odds are going down a little bit as we go through. What about the temple? How many of you think that there is a literal building in heaven, a literal temple like the earthly temple? Raise your hands. None. Oh, that's interesting. Very interesting because generally Adventists are about 50-50 on that one. But this group evidently settles on the one side. The challenge I've always had with the literal temple in heaven idea is which earthly temple is modeled after the heavenly temple? Is it the tabernacle of Moses? Is it the temple of Solomon? Is it the temple of Zerubbabel? Is it the temple of Ezekiel? And all four of them are different. You also have the temple of Herod in the New Testament. So, you know, which of them is modeled after the heavenly building? This group here seems pretty firmly decided that the earthly sanctuary represents heavenly realities rather than a heavenly building with priests going around and lamps lighted, etc. All right, interesting. Reaping the harvest. How many of you think the harvest is literal? There's a couple, several hands. Okay, yeah. You can see the challenge. And within this text, I think it's pretty clear that it can't all be literal, and yet we're not ready to take it all figuratively either. Let's take a look at Revelation 1.1 and see if that affects our decision-making at all. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. All right. Now, there's an interesting feature of this verse that isn't obvious in translation. That says, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Made it known is a Greek word that consistently in the New Testament means symbolic language regarding the future. So, he summarizes in the beginning of this book the idea that Jesus signified the book. And that tells me that you take it symbolically, unless it's overwhelmingly evident that it must be literal. In other words, here, generally in a biblical text, you take it literally, unless it's obvious the symbols being employed. In Revelation, it seems the opposite principle is at work. All right, let's discuss what we've been doing here so far. Alyssa? Well, if I voted literally, to any of those symbols or items in Revelation 14 and 15, I don't think I would vote literally on any of them. It starts off with a simile. I looked and behold, on a white cloud, on the clouds that one like the Son of Man. Mm. That's a simile. So it's not saying on the clouds sat the Son of Man, but one like the Son of Man. So then when I read through the other things. I'm thinking simile, like, like, like. Mm. And so I don't think any of it was literal. All right. Well, or that uh, I should uh, interpret it as literal. Yeah. I think your point is well taken both ways in the sense that John is literally describing what he saw. Yes. Okay. And, and at that, I could see a lot of people raising their hand for a literal. The question is, what was God's purpose? in giving the vision that he is literally describing. 
And is it God's purpose in giving a vision of a sickle or a vision of a harvest that they be taken literally along with the cloud and a few other things? All right, Bob? One could be persuaded to go either way if one had a chance to perhaps examine, I hate to use the word cross-examine, but the angel who was the messenger because there's a lot of questions for definitions in there. So, for example, we use the word capital, and capital is symbolic of the headquarters of a country or a state or something, but it can have a lot of different meanings of different cultures. So, I would be curious. I could see a white cloud. On the other hand, I could see a gold cloud, or God could have things we've never imagined, and so he may be translating things in a language that we might be able to comprehend, but it seems like there's room for us to totally underestimate what we're going to see. So, you know, since none of us have been there, we may be shocked at what we see because it'll be beyond anything that we have seen in this world. And we can't really tell. Maybe some astronomer could say, well, it's pretty glorious looking out there, but most of us don't have any way of comparing it to anything here. So if you had an hour to sit and cross-examine the angel and say, could I go into some detail? It might be easier to make that vote, but I feel a little ignorant on making my vote the way I did. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And I don't want anyone to feel embarrassed about how they voted or anything like that. It was simply, what do you think? And the point was to illustrate how difficult it is to make that decision sometimes. And I think there's a couple of these are, are obviously symbolic, but the others not so much so. And so we wrestle with it a bit, and, and scholars have often wrestled with it. I do think Revelation 1.1 is helpful in the sense that it steers us towards symbolic when we're not sure. If you're reasonably sure, it's literal. You know, for example, Jesus Christ is in the book. Is that a symbol of someone or something else? Probably not. So day and night might seem to be taken in a straightforward manner rather than a symbolic manner necessarily. So, yeah. Larry? Suppose for a moment that 2022 is the equivalent and John is on the Isle of Patmos and he's writing a letter to us. So how would he do that today that would be meaningful to us? Because if he writes clearly this is a handwritten letter that could easily be confiscated and not distributed if the federal government perceives that this is false information that they don't want to get out. So before it's even seen by anybody, it's taken down off of YouTube. So how would he write the story in such a way that is meaningful to us today and that, God forbid, we're still here in 3022, that people are sitting down and they read the story and they get something from it. So for us, it would seem that it would have to be somehow use symbols that we understand and tell a story that we get the meaning of the story without actually naming what's going on in the story, but enough of it so that it's clear. Is that kind of and with that then becomes the whole dilemma of why do we even get caught up in trying to worry about whether it's symbolic or real or if he'd have used helicopters, who in 1500 would have thought that there would be helicopters? Nobody had ever seen a helicopter. So, you know, the dilemma is we try to make stories and argue things that, in my opinion, are not relevant to the story. One interesting piece is that I think a major element of cryptography today 
is that, for example, a given CIA station will have, it used to be, you know, CDs. They would have just hundreds and hundreds of CDs, which would have pre-programmed language on it. Headquarters would know the content of all of those, and they would send a half of the message that would be combined with a selected disk, now perhaps just a download, and then they would be combined together and the message would be clear. But nobody looking at either the embassy's disk or at the headquarters disk would have any clue what the message was about. So you're suggesting here, John is seeking to communicate a message. In other words, the reader has to bring some of it too. You know, following that analogy and putting the two together is going to make sense. Anyway, maybe it's a bad analogy. Uh, Lou. I have a question. I grew up in Seventh-day Adventist home and schools, and it wasn't until a few years ago that I even heard about that the sanctuary in heaven may not be a real building like we've understood it here. And I heard that and I thought, wow, so has our denomination changed along those lines or has just a few people? I love the concept that the sanctuary is being with God. So I just wanted to know your thoughts on that, John. Have we as a denomination or some people in the denomination changed that concept or is that a widely held concept? Yeah, the literal building is probably default for many, many people and always has been. The most recent study was done by the General Conference in the Daniel and Revelation Committee in the 1980s, and it produced a book on Hebrews. And in that was a chapter by William Johnson on this very topic. And in studying Adventist history, he concluded that Adventists have three answers to the question, what does the earthly sanctuary represent? And one answer is it represents what God is doing in our hearts and in our communities. And that was Kellogg was associated with that, but also Ellen White. Mm -hmm. The second one is that the earthly sanctuary represents a heavenly building. And the third is that the earthly sanctuary represents heavenly realities, not something literal and specific. So all three of those have had historical currency uh, within the Adventist church. The first one has tended to be ignored or even rejected because Kellogg rejected the other two. The problem with Kellogg was not the idea of the body as a living temple so much as the idea that we don't need a heavenly sanctuary because the symbol is fully taken up mm -hmm. by realities that we're familiar with. But all three of those have had currency, and you can find all three, I think, in Ellen White, although she's probably not so clear on exactly what the heavenly sanctuary is like. At times, it seems like she's describing a building. At other times, she's describing what's going on there. So. It's just interesting that this particular group seemed to align on one side quite sharply. Bob? Well, going from analogy, when Christ talks about preparing mansions in heaven, is there any clue there going to the whatever language was used? Was Christ talking literally about mansions? Because all of us here picture Hearst Castle or Versailles <laughs> or something like that. I'll take uh, it. Is that what God's talking about? Because in Garden of Eden, I just don't recall that they had a castle with a moat and things like that. So is there any clue anywhere in the language Christ used about mansions as to what he's talking about for structures in heaven? Does, is there a construction company literally building mansions? I'll stop there. Mm -hmm. Did God use a construction company to build the earth? 
Well, <laughs> maybe, right? <laughs> but probably not. It tells us that he could speak it into existence as well. On the other hand, he did construct Adam. So, yeah. Interesting questions regarding the, this whole issue. One thing to keep in mind is my observation of biblical prophecy is that the prophets speak in the language of their own past, and God speaks to the prophets in the language of the prophet's past. And so when it talks about mansions, that is, of course, taking up the language of Jesus' day in, in an attempt to communicate something. And the thing it was communicating was that Jesus was going to come back for them, and they would not be separated for long. Remember, in that part of the Gospel of John, Jesus is announcing his departure, and the disciples are really depressed in chapter 14. So Jesus begins by assuring them that while he will go away, he will return, and they can count on that. I'm just right now doing some work on Revelation 20 for my commentary, and the question is, what are the books? They're scrolls, according to the language. They're scrolls. Are there scrolls in heaven? Because the Bible says so. Or would today a prophet say, well, there's heavenly hard drives, or is there a heavenly cloud? Or maybe in the future, we'll just come to the conclusion that the books of heaven are the collective memory of the entire universe, perhaps. So I wrestled with that in that regard. And, and the answer ultimately, Bob, is uh, we don't know, and we're probably foolish if we think we do. But in thinking these things through, it may help us to get a clearer picture of what God is intending in the text. Let's go to number three. And it's still on verse 14, but it's picking up on this idea of the Son of Man. So John sees someone like a Son of Man. Why use Son of Man in this particular context? Anyone have a thought? Why instead of saying Lamb, for example, it says Son of Man here? Is there some theological purpose behind this? Terry? Well, when Jesus came to this earth, he came in a human form. To me, that means so that humans could relate to him. When he was going back to heaven after his resurrection, the angels told the disciples, this same Jesus will come back for you. So I wonder, and it seems to me that it's just another item of evidence that it is the same Jesus who was here, who we could relate to, and connecting to what the angels told the disciples when Jesus was going back to heaven. Okay, Lou? It makes it more personal for us as humans, somehow that the connection between God, the Father, and heaven is Jesus. And uh, to me, that's just a beautiful way of making it more personal as a human being. All right, very good. Uh, Livius. The reaping is the reaping of the earth and the reaping of men. So a man is doing the reaping, if you will. Maybe someone who has conquered, who can relate. I wonder if that's connected. So you're focusing on the humanness yeah. of, of the metaphor. And certainly in Ezekiel, son of man is used simply as like guy, you know, hey, my guy, what's up? You know, God is just calling him son of man. That's just a term he's using, human one, etc. But son of man has a richer background than that, that may be of some help to us. And we'll get to that in a moment. John? The son of man is being referred to 
earlier in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. And this individual is standing amongst the lampstands and is clearly described as Christ. So surely John is linking this expression with Daniel and with his previous comments about the Son of Man. Appreciate those comments. Larry? When we go back to Genesis and we see the story that the seed of Adam and Eve is going to be involved in crushing the serpent, and the story that unfolds in Revelation is the completion of that, that it's linking it back, because these are Jews who are getting the story, not Greeks, definitely not Americans. And so in their way of thinking, they're making the connection all the way back to the beginning, and they see this as the final completion of the promise that was made at the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. I appreciate that connection, and I think it's an extremely important one, but let's see it in a surprising context. And as Daniel 7, we'll do a little background on Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. All right, you notice that this son of man, which is pretty much a first appearance along with the one in Ezekiel, this particular son of man comes with the clouds of heaven. So there's a background for the description in Revelation 14. It's not a surprise. It's not, oh, you put those two things together. It is, in fact, part of the source. This son of man is someone who presides over the final judgment. But more than this, and this is connecting with what Larry said, more than this, This son of man in Daniel is the second Adam. And how do we know that? If you look at the context of the vision, you have a stormy sea. You have animals that appear. And here you have a human figure who has dominion over the animals. The background here is the story of creation. And the son of man is a second Adam. So tying all of this back to Eden, I think Larry was quite significant. Even if you didn't see the link in Daniel 7, which gives it further support. So Jesus, of course, came as the second Adam, and that's explicit in Scripture. And he adopted Son of Man as his primary self-designation. So the Son of Man is somebody who existed before, before creation. And he's of heavenly origin, and he will preside over the final judgment. Now, in the Gospels, Uh, Son of Man appears 82 times, and it appears in three contexts. First of all, it's associated with the passion of Jesus Christ, with the cross, Um, numerous times. It's connected with Isaiah 53, something that starts with Jesus. No one ever did that before in the Old Testament or in Jewish background, to connect the Son of Man of Daniel 7 with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And so Jesus connects the Son of Man with his crucifixion, his suffering. He also uses Son of Man regarding his earthly ministry. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. 
he says to the man who is let down through the roof. Repeatedly, Jesus uses son of man in relation to his miracles and his ministry. Thirdly, he also uses it to talk about the end time judgment. You will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So son of man coming clouds, it's all part of a larger background. So the vision here is doing what I mentioned earlier. Biblical prophets use the language of their past. And if you want to say this is God's language, God meets the biblical prophet in the language of his past. And that's really important for interpretation, because if we assume the language was chosen for the reader, we may import our own ideas into what we read there. But no, the language was chosen for the person who received the message. And it was a language that they could have understood, even if they don't grasp all the implications. The language was written for them. And John, seeing this vision, seeing the Son of Man, seeing the clouds, etc., would bring to his mind not only Daniel 7, but also the whole earthly story of Jesus and his future as the one who comes again. All right, Rita. I find it interesting that Daniel refers to this person as like a son of man, and John in the Revelation, like a son of man. So it sees they both, what they're seeing is a person that probably looks like them, but they're recognizing that it isn't just an ordinary human being like them. Whereas what you were saying about how Jesus refers to as son of man, if I remember, it's always the son of man, not like a son of man. Mm-hmm. So he's referring to himself as that son of man, not the like a son of man. So the proper humans, like Daniel and John, are seeing something that to them is not like them, but is like them. Christ is saying, I'm that one that is like you, but isn't like you. So God meets the prophet where the prophet is, but the message God gives is not limited by the prophet's understanding of the message. So God's word can have implications beyond what the original prophet understood. So I think it's important that we start with the original meaning as closely as we can come to it. But then it's also appropriate to ask the question, is there more there than what John could have understood or Daniel could have understood? I want to point you to one more text that I think will bring things full circle here. Revelation 1 and verse 17. If you remember, it was just pointed out that the Son of Man appears in chapter 1. But notice the conclusion of that appearance here in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So the first appearance in the book of Revelation of the Son of Man The whole purpose of that appearance seems to be, first of all, to surprise John with the magnificence of Jesus beyond anything except maybe during the transfiguration that John might have seen. But then the message comes through. There's no reason to be afraid. Even though John collapses on the ground, there's no reason to be afraid. Would that play a role in understanding chapter 14? Is the Son of Man the one who returns? Because we already know that the Son of Man does not want us to be afraid that when Jesus returns, we will see someone who looks like us and there'll be nothing to fear. All right, Terry? 
When I was searching for the quotes, I read where Ellen White says, and I can't remember if it was in the commentary on Revelation or just where exactly, but she talked about that when Jesus appeared to John on Patmos, she made a point of saying that it was the same person that he had been with so many years before in his glorified form. She made it very clear that it was the very same person. And it really struck me when I read it. I thought, wow, what must John have thought or felt like? You know, I spent three and a half years with this man wandering around Judea, doing all these things. And now it's the very same person who's standing in front of me again. Mm -hmm. And yet that person is more magnificent than anything he experienced before. All right. Let's go to number five. And in number five, it says, compare Revelation 14, 15 and Mark 4, 26 to 29. What similarities do you see between these texts? Should we take the ripening here literally or figuratively? Revelation 14, 15. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud. Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Right, I think we've concluded that harvest here is not to be taken literally. It's not a harvest of crops, even though it says it is. It's not literal wheat. It's not literal grapes. It is a harvest of people. And what does that mean, a harvest? Of people. And what does it mean that the harvest is ripe in reference to people? Let's look at Mark 4. Mark 4, I think, goes along similar lines as Revelation 14. Mark 4, verses 26 to 29. He also said, The kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. All right. So here Jesus is using an agricultural analogy. He's talked about the sower going out to sow just previous to this. And he's talking about evangelism. He's talking about people talking to other people about the gospel, etc. And here he talks about the growth of the plants that come from the seed and that it is gradual and that it eventually becomes ripe. So what is this all talking about, this ripening of people? John, John is trying to describe the culmination of a particular process. Harvest is the ending of sowing growth. And finally, when the crop is ripe, there is harvest. And both the wheat or the corn, whatever we're talking about, and the grapes are both ripe, ready for harvest, the ending of the process. Larry. There was a parable about the landowner who went out and sowed the good seed and they get up in the morning and lo and behold as the plants are coming up they find out that somebody has put weeds in and servants say should we go out and get them now he said no that's only going to damage the good seed the good plants let everything wait until the harvest is ripe so is john 
trying to somehow go back and indicate that it's not just the good people that are ready to be harvested, but that the entire process is now reaching its completion of going to where it needed to go so that each side is fully representative of their belief structure. Well, you're heading exactly where the lesson is ultimately heading, and that is that there's two harvests here and that both of them need to ripen. All right, Dan. For a variety of reasons, I've recently been reading some books about media and its effect on us. And it's really quite frightening when you really look at the media in terms of propaganda and how we are almost daily being propagandized by big companies who are trying to convince us of one thing or another. And in contrast to that, at the same time, a plane ride coming back from the East Coast, I read a book on humility. And it, it seems such a contrast between what the media is trying to do and what God would have us to become like in the way of humility. And I conclude with a book that I recently read called Dopamination. And that is the ultimate end of what media is doing to us, is really making us just pursue pleasure, pursue what's going to make us happy versus the path of humility. And it seems to me that the path of humility is really what we're talking about here in Revelation. Christ, for everything in all of his forms, was always humble. And yet, at the same time, he could be quite something else. I think the time is going to be ready for harvesting because I think the contrast between what God would have us to be in being humble versus chasing after pleasure, as the dopamine nation suggests we are doing currently. The contrast is going to be so great that the results will be so apparent that God will be able to harvest. Yeah, and the challenge there, things used to be very simple to say, well, this is good and that's not so good, and make your choices. But it's getting harder and harder to discern. One thing I've noticed is perhaps Twitter always did this, but I've noticed just in the last month or two, suddenly they're throwing all kinds of stuff into my feed that I didn't order, so to speak. Not from the people that I'm following, but, oh, you might like this, or you might like that. And so on. And about three quarters of the feed is now stuff that I didn't ask for, but is seeking to suck me into staying longer. And it's also seeking perhaps to steer my opinions in certain ways with the things that have been selected. So I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to manage that. And one way to manage it, I guess, is just to turn it off completely. But there's people following me, so I don't have that option, I guess. But yeah, the subtle ways in which you are advertised, even when you think you're just looking at the things that you are wanting to look at. Ephesians 4, I think, is very helpful in regard to this whole idea of ripening and what it means. Ephesians 4, verses 13 to 16. Until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. So here I would see the more literally what the agricultural analogy is attempting to tell us, uh, just as plants grow. So spiritual life 
is to grow. Spiritual life goes through stages, something that we've explored together in the past, and that over time, the goal is maturity. The goal is stability, not to be tossed to and fro. The goal is unity, to grow together. The goal is love, to grow in love, that the whole purpose is maturity. And you'll notice that that harvest is in the context of the second coming. If God is delaying the second coming, it may simply be that too many of his people are not ready. They're not ready for the storms of the end. They're not ready for the troubles of the end. They don't have the discernment, the maturity, the spiritual courage to stand alone. Standing alone is very, very hard. But some who pass through the trials of the end time will have to do so alone, whether that's in prison cells or the wilderness or whatever. And to stand alone when everyone seems against you, that requires a high level of maturity, stability, etc. And of course, the community growing in the maturity of its love. So the harvest will come when the church is ready. Livius. You mentioned that the background for Revelation 14 was from chapter 12, but doesn't it go a little further back than that, all the way to chapter 3 on the church of Laodicea, where you have basically three groups of people. You have the hot, you have the cold, and then you have the lukewarm. And the being tossed to and fro, that almost sounds like a lukewarm kind of a principle where you're just going left or you're going right, you just haven't made a decision. And what's happening here is the end of this sifting. People have made a decision, either hot or cold at this point. And so the harvest becomes ripe. This is kind of the culmination of everyone splitting into two groups instead of three groups. Mm -hmm. Someone listening to me just a moment ago might think this is some sort of a detailed perfectionism, but I would note a statement of Ellen White that's in the lesson, at every stage of development, our life may be perfect. Now, at these various stages of development, we are quite aware of our faults, and yet at every stage, warts and all, our lives may be perfect. What do you do with that larger understanding? John? In the Old Testament, God said to Abraham that he couldn't inhabit going to Canaan, inherit Canaan, because the Canaanites and Malachites hadn't matured, they weren't ripe. And I accept that it's the church, but it's also the grapes are also ripe. So you can't have a harvest of the wheat without having a harvest of the grapes. The two have got to be ripe together. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think that's the double picture that we see in Revelation 14, that there's a double ripening, a double harvest. And that means that this will happen at such a time as the gospel is fully proclaimed, and that will be part of our study next week. At such a time, the world will be divided. At such a time, two sides will both be ripening. At such a time, there'll be a maturation of principles. And the events of the end will be challenging. God does not want his people to go through unprepared. So what I meant by the church being ready was not some absolute perfective state. You know, everybody's now vegan or something, but was rather saying that there will be a collective maturity that will enable people to handle the future as it comes. Well, let's go ahead and explore that in number six, where you have verses 17 to 20. We have a counter harvest, Revelation 14, verses 17 to 20. 
Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth, and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. Once again, we could play the literal figurative game. The sharp sickle again, is that literal or figurative? What about the grapes? What about the wine press? What about the blood up to the horse's bridles, etc.? Taking that largely as figurative, what is going on here? What does it mean of a ripening of the grapes? What is that supposed to mean if it's not to be taken literally? All right, Terry? My sense is that it is coming to a firm decision. And we've all met people who have come to a firm decision and they've decided that whatever that decision is, is accurate and it's truth. And they are so firmly dedicated to that opinion and that view that even if we give them other evidence, lay it out in front of them, they won't accept it because they have decided they know what the reality is. And it seems like they've come to a firm decision. That's interesting as we often encourage people to open their minds to further truth from God. But does this somewhat attention with that? Are we to come to a place of firm decision? And I think you're absolutely reflecting this closer probation idea that when everyone's made a firm decision one way or another, then you know the gospel is no longer relevant because nobody's going to be changing their minds. But before that time, when does a firm decision a sign of maturity, and when is it a sign of inflexibility? Using some more symbolism and revelation, that's the sealing. And the harvest will come when Ariana is sealed, and you've made up your mind, you're not going to change your mind anymore. I've often spoken of the tension between a believer and a scholar, that as a believer, one can make firm commitments. And as a scholar, still recognize you have a lot to learn and to somehow keep your mind open even while you're closing it. That is challenging, but that's what mature Christians are more and more able to do. They're able to have firm convictions without closing their minds. And there needs to be a tension between those. Henry. How about if we consider we have come to the point to the decision, we have made the decision or rationalized that this is symbolic language. And as such, then it's kind of a, an analogy. And we have mentioned in prior classes that we cannot stretch it too much because if we try to explain everything, then we are not going to be making the point. The idea is not to explain every single detail in the analogy. When we see the harvest, typically with and grapes don't make choices. They just become ripe. But in the case of us, we do make the choice. We are not just ending up because my genes are with or my genes are grape. It is my choice. So that's what the harvest is determined. When I have made my choice, when we have collectively made our choice, because it was not defined by 
genetics like wheat and grapes, but by reasoning, convincing, and making a decision. In our seminars on stages of faith and stages of surrender, I think we drew the conclusion that we don't grow ourselves. It is God that grows us. And of course, no farmer can actually make a blade of grass, right? A farmer throws down the seed and does a number of things. But having done that, the growth is still a miracle. The life principle is implanted within that seed. And it's an amazing thing. So we don't grow ourselves, but we can resist. We can block up the way to God's growing us. We can starve ourselves of the nourishment that is needed to grow. So we have a role to play, even though God is the one who truly grows people. Rita? It's something I've just noticed, and probably should have noticed a very long time ago, that these two harvests, the harvests of the earth, and that sickle is swung by the one who is like a son of man. But the harvest, the other harvest of the grapes, the sickle is swung by an angel. So they're collected in by two different entities. One, like the son of man, mm-hmm. reaps it in for himself, whereas the harvest of the grapes is basically destroyed. Maybe more of a police action than a rescue. <laughs> you think about it, when Jesus comes, he's rescuing his own people, and the others are being allowed to make their way to metaphorically a prison. All right, Pamela, I was talking earlier, was wondering, as you've thought about it, what is necessary for a plant to grow? And as we hear these kind of things, we can all ask ourselves the question, what is the analogy here? What is it helping us spiritually? Go ahead, Pamela. Okay. In order for plants to grow in a healthy way, seeds need to flourish by various things in environment, which would be including the soil. Seed need loamy, rich, good amendments, sandy soil. So you need to know how to take care of that plant, that seed. And then there's the alkaline acid balance of NPK and sunshine is very important. More sun, less sun. So you need to know these things in order to have a good, healthy plant. Do I have a minute to tell a story on myself? Absolutely. (laughs) Before I took horticulture classes, before I got my degree, before all that, when I was younger, I tried to grow plants, but it just didn't work out too well. In our church, we had a member who had a a hobby greenhouse. So he enjoyed giving the pastor's wife, this young pastor's wife, flowers, some kind of plant, mostly indoor plant. And so finally, he knew that I was not having very much success and they didn't do well. And so he'd give me more and he'd tell me, would you like some more plants to kill? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it took me quite a while to learn how to get my seeds to grow and flourish and mature. All right. And you're doing a lot better from my observation as you have grown into these things. But what do the rest of you think? Taking this analogy now, she mentioned things about pH balance of the water, acid versus base, talks about water, fertilizer, sunshine, etc. Pursuing these analogies, is there anything there that would help us spiritually? How does one grow spiritually by the analogy of plants? What would be the fertilizer of Christian life? What would be the sunshine, etc.? Alyssa? I've had a similar experience to Pamela. When Danny and I first got married, we started with potted plants, flowers mostly. 
no flowers only. We've since progressed. And I think one thing she might not have mentioned, but I'm sure she'd agree, is that while all the things that she talked about are essential, you can overdo. Water's essential, right, Pamela? In fact, I discovered that it was worse to water more than not, that most plants want less water instead of more water. And that you had to be sensitive, you had to know, does this plant require full sunlight, half sunlight, filtered sunlight, and maybe even how many hours of sunlight would make this flower thrive or this plant thrive. And I think there are so many, at first I used to think that sower parable, to be honest with you, was not for me. I was never a farmer. I was never going to be a farmer. I had no interest in growing stuff. But as time goes by, you start to think Jesus's parables are deep and are universal. And all of a sudden, I became interested in that parable of the sower. And I thought, what combination, if we're still talking plants, Pamela, what combination of sunlight, me, and the Holy Spirit, what combination is there that I need to figure out in order to make not just the plant thrive, but for me to thrive? What is that combination of where I let the Holy Spirit, he gives me the right water, the right sunshine, the right fertilizer, but how does that partnership work? And it's taken a long time to figure that out. Well, your comments make me wonder, what would be the analogy of water? Is that the Spirit? Is that the Scriptures? Is that prayer? And which of those can you get too much of? I don't think we can get too much of the Holy Spirit. But I think we could get too much of some other things. All right. One of the Wigamans. Hi, it's Nancy. Hi, Nancy. I was just thinking how Jesus said that he was the light of the world and how he said he was the water of life. And I understand he was saying his explanations of who God is like, which is him and his father, the spirit, is that understanding brings us life and maturity. All right. So you would kind of be suggesting let's not break down these elements of growth. In a sense, they're all Jesus. Is that what you're saying? And what was he here talking about? He was here for a very big picture. And so then the question becomes, how do you get enough of Jesus to grow? Is it not in his word is very important. His his scriptures, the book of nature, all the evidence we look around is truth, is reality. And we need to pay attention to it and decide. So paying attention not only to scripture, but also to nature, yes, and reality, etc. Yeah, mm-hmm. and how we see God working in our lives, the evidences we see, our walk with him. It all works together. All right, Aaron. I like that, that Jesus can be all of those things, and the Holy Spirit, too. In the extra reading on this section, Extra Study with Ellen White, there's a quote from Desire of Ages that talks about the Holy Spirit never leaving unassisted the soul who is looking to Jesus. And in our plant analogy, sunlight is so critical. And so you can find plants in a desert where there's not much water. You can find plants in poor soil where there's not much fertilizer but you can't find plants 
where there's no sunlight. And not to say that those other things aren't important because Jesus is the water of life and he's the bread of life, but he's also the light of the world. And Jesus is to be that all pervasive presence with us. And so for me, the analogy of the plant receiving life from the sun is us putting ourselves in God's presence by thinking about him, talking to him. That would be the analogy for me there. Okay, let me just mention something in the lesson, an Ellen White statement that says this, that I think is helpful. It is a law, both of the intellectual and spiritual nature, that by beholding, we become changed. How do you get Jesus into your life? How do you get the water, the sunlight, etc., in the analogy? How do you get all of that? By beholding, we become changed. The mind gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which it is allowed to dwell. That's Great Controversy, page 555. All right, our time is just about up. Go ahead, Sean. For the last three years in Northern California, I have been working in the context of blackened forests. And one of the pictures that inspires me every day is to see that three years hence, out of those blackened forests are coming new sprouts of oak trees, wild flowers, and other beautiful plants that really represent quite a contrast in terms of the background that they are growing in. And these are lessons to me every day that one of the essentials in my life for growth toward maturity is to be involved in the blackened context of the life that I live in, in the culture that I live in, and to continue to draw upon God to be growing and blossoming in that context. Uh, thank you very much. Bob. Following up on the comment earlier, the bristlecone pine is the longest lived tree in the world, and it lives in Arctic climates, you know, up to 10 or 12,000 feet, very little moisture, lots of sunshine, harsh winds, but it somehow managed to survive. And people have written about it that sometimes the plants like that, that are in the harshest conditions, actually can live longer than a plant that's growing in a very prosperous situation. So it shows that even in the most difficult situations, there's hope. All right, Rita. We've talked a bit about the various things that plants need to grow and thrive. But I think really what we need to remember is that it's the entire ecosystem that that plant or any animal, anything lives in, that is what determines whether it thrives or doesn't. And no matter how much nutrients you put into the soil, the NPKs, the water, if there isn't oxygen in the soil, the plant will die. And if there aren't the various creatures in the soil to break down dead material to provide more food, the plant will die. Well, it might not die, but it won't thrive. So it's the entire ecosystem, which is what we're learning just in nature as a whole now. And I think the same applies for us in our spiritual growth. We need the whole ecosystem. We need other people who know God to help us to thrive. And God seems to have known that because he did put us into communities. All right, Alyssa? 
I think that statement that you quoted here from Ellen White, it is a law both of the intellectual and the spiritual nature that by we beholding, we become changed. The mind gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which it is allowed to dwell. Ellen White did not have the information we have now about brain anatomy, brain function. She did not know about mirror neurons. And we've talked about mirror neurons here before. What you see, you make a mirror neuron of in your brain. Our kids do that. Our children do that. And so we've been giving talks to faculty at academies, and we're talking about digital addiction, that our generations, our young people now are becoming addicted to digital media. And so what Ellen White says, I think, here is so critical that are we creating those mirror neurons, those pathways of intellectual and spiritual nature that will draw us closer to God and make us more like Jesus Christ? Excellent way to bring it home as we come to a close that ultimately this is about God and whether we choose to see him as he truly is, whether we choose to align our lives with God and become changed by beholding. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the time we've just spent together. I pray that as each of us plans the week to follow, that we might include in those plans a focus on you and plenty of the right kind of beholding. So our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.